Welcome to this eViral Hepatitis Review Podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of eViral Hepatitis Review. We're here today with the authors of our recent newsletter issue on hepatitis C complications in special populations. Both our guests are from the University of Miami's Miller School of Medicine, where Dr. Paul Martin is Professor of Medicine and Chief of the Divisions of Gastroenterology and Hepatology, and Dr. Kalyan Rambabinamari, who's Associate Professor of Clinical Medicine. Eviral Hepatitis Review is jointly presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated and AbbVie Incorporated. Learning objectives for this audio program include identify, diagnose, and manage hepatitis C-associated vasculitis, and describe the changing management strategies in solid organ transplantation, including the use of organs from hepatitis C-positive donors. Dr. Paul Martin has disclosed that he has served as a principal investigator and consultant for Gilead Sciences Incorporated, AbbVie Incorporated, and Merck and Company Incorporated. Dr. Kalyan Ramba Minamari has disclosed that he has served as a principal investigator for Gilead Sciences Incorporated, Mellencrot Incorporated, and Vital Therapies Incorporated. He has also received honoraria for participation on scientific advisory boards for Merck & Company Incorporated, Abbott Laboratories Incorporated, Intercept Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, and Gilead Sciences Incorporated. And he has received consulting fees for disease state education from Alexian Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. Both our guests have indicated that there will be no references to the unlabeled or unapproved uses of any drugs or products in today's discussion. Dr. Paul Martin, Dr. Ramba Minamari, thank you both for joining us today. Well, thank you, Bob, for including us in this interesting program. Thank you for having us, Bob. As you presented in your recent newsletter issue, doctors, the concept of managing special populations with hepatitis C infection has shifted focus now to individuals affected by HCV-related hepatic and extrahepatic manifestations, including, as we're going to talk about today, patients with chronic kidney disease and cryoglobulinemia, and patients considering receipt of transplant organs from hepatitis C-infected donors. So start us out, if you would, please, Dr. Baminamari, with a patient scenario. Today, I'm going to present a clinical vignette where a 68-year-old veteran man with hypertension, COPD, CKD stage 2, depression, polysubstance abuse, but he has been clean since the past one year. He came to my clinic as he was referred for the management of hepatitis C that was newly diagnosed. He wants to establish care with me. He was homeless for several years, but now he lives in a shelter and is motivated to lead a healthy lifestyle. He vaguely remembers being diagnosed with hepatitis more than 10 years ago, but he could not recall the details. He complains of fatigue, arthralgias, tingling and numbness, mainly in the feet, itchy rash in both legs, and he denies abdominal distension, jaundice, GI bleeding, or any episodes of confusion. Now, when we do a physical exam, it showed a well-developed man, well-nourished, with a BMI of 26. He has multiple tattoos on his arms. He has distant breath sounds consistent with COPD. On abdominal exam, he has mild hepatomegaly, but otherwise the rest of the exam was unremarkable. He has erythematous maculonodular rash in the lower extremities. His neurologic exam was normal. Now, when we did the lab exam, it showed he had normal hemoglobin, normal platelets. His creatinine was 1.7. Liver biochemistries revealed elevated transaminases, AST and ALT of 90 and 72 but bilirubin, albumin, and INR are normal. His hepatitis C genotype was 3, 
and hepatitis C RNA was more than 6.1 million international units. Ultrasound of his liver showed an echogenic liver and a fiber scan score of 6.2 kilopascals. He underwent a battery of tests to evaluate his CKD, which basically showed a normal urine analysis. He had positive room rate factor, a cryocrit of 12%, and low C4, which is complement level. Well, thank you, Dr. Bimitamari. Dr. Martin, your impressions of this patient when considering the differential diagnosis? I think, importantly, there are a number of differentials in this particular patient. We know that he has a history of hepatitis C. He doesn't appear to be cirrhotic, however, and the reason I mention that is that if he were cirrhotic, that broadens the differential in a patient with chronic liver disease, including disease due to hepatitis C. So in this context, we're not worried about etiologies such as hepatorenal syndrome. He also has systemic hypertension, and another consideration might be that he has renal dysfunction reflecting the effects of long-standing systemic hypertension. We do know, however, from his initial workup that he has detectable circulating cryoglobulins, he's a low CD4 count, and he's an active urinary sediment. So this suggests that the cryoglobulinemia is involved in the pathogenesis of his renal dysfunction. And one of the challenges always is that cryoglobulins can be demonstrated in a lot of patients with hepatitis C, but it's a smaller number who actually develop end-organ disease as a result. There are also some other important clues, however, in his history to suggest this is a cryoglobulinemia-related phenomenon, namely that he has a rash on his lower extremities. So my initial suspicion is that the cryoglobulinemia is involved in the pathogenesis of his renal dysfunction. Cryoglobulinemia or cryoglobulinemic vasculitis? Dr. Babinamari? When you're dealing with a patient infected with hepatitis C and CKD, once there is multi-organ involvement, and uh, such as rash, peripheral neuropathy, and kidney involvement, we should keep in mind that cryoglobulins could be one of the differentials. And the distinguishing thing between presence of cryoglobulinemia and cryoglobulinemic vasculitis is the presence of that other organ involvement. So cryoglobulinemia is purely a presence of circulating cryoglobulins, which can be seen in up to 15 to 65% of patients who are infected with any chronic viral illnesses, including hepatitis C, hepatitis B, HIV. But just the presence of cryoglobulins may not lead to organ involvement and symptoms. Whereas on the other hand, cryoglobulinemic vasculitis, which is less frequent, occurs in less than 1 in 100,000 individuals, it is associated with systemic inflammation, and it is distinct because there are signs and symptoms of organ involvement. Now, like in our patient, he had palpable purpura, he had peripheral neuropathy, chronic kidney disease, and arthralgias. So in this patient, the differential would be cryoglobulinemic vasculitis. So you feel fairly certain about your suspicion of cryoglobulinemic vasculitis. How do you actually make the diagnosis? So to diagnose cryoglobulinemic vasculitis, one should know that hepatitis C can give rise to the type 2 mixed kind of cryoglobulinemia. And in this mixed cryoglobulinemia, one of the screening tests that can detect the presence of CV is the presence of rheumatoid factor. It's usually present in high titers because 
Cryoglobulins in the setting of hepatitis C is composed of a mixture of monoclonal IgMs that are typically picked up by the test for RF. Now, as presented in the clinical vignette, a cryocrit that is more than 1% or 50 micrograms per ml associated with the low complement 4 or C4 levels are actually diagnostic of cryoglobulinemic vasculitis. Typically, in the cryoprecipitate, one can actually see the hepatitis C antigen and the antibody. Hepatitis C virus need not be present for the occurrence of cryoglobulinemic vasculitis. Just the presence of serologic markers is sufficient to cause the cryoglobulinemic vasculitis. Now, when in doubt or when the suspicion is still present, one can do biopsies of the skin, peripheral nerve, kidney, or bone marrow. But again, in this setting, I don't think a biopsy of any of these organs is necessary. So Dr. Vibinamari said a type 2 mixed kind of cryoglobulinemia. How many types of cryoglobulinemias are there, Dr. Martin? Bob, at least three types of cryoglobulins are identified, and the classification part depends on the clinical circumstance. The one we're discussing is type 2, is called mixed essential cryoglobulinemia in the past, but we now know that the vast majority of these cases are related to hepatitis C infection. In clinical practice, I, I think it's fair to say that it's the type 2, the mixed essential cryoglobulinemia is the one that's most frequently encountered. Dr. Bibinamari, how do these three types differ? Type 1 typically is associated with hematologic neoplasia, and it is characterized by the presence of more thrombotic complications and hyperviscosity, where one would see ischemia, liver reticularis, Raynaud's-like phenomenon. And in type 1, when you do a cryocrit, it's often very highly elevated, more than 50%. Type 2 and type 3 are your classic vasculitis-type pictures, where there is more vessel wall inflammation and vasculitis rather than thrombotic complications. In type 2 and type 3, the cryocrit is typically between 2 to 7%. And when you're generally doing the workup in a patient with cryoglobulinemic vasculitis, the lab tests need to be drawn at a certain temperature and needs to be processed at a certain temperature because, as the name implies, cryoprecipitate, the precipitation occurs when it is in the cold temperature. So when your clinical stigmata for a cryoglobulinemic vasculitis is high, a negative cryocrit should not necessarily stop your workup. If your clinical suspicion is high, you probably need to repeat the test. And again, probably it should be processed at the lab-given temperatures and specifications. You can always screen with a rheumatoid factor, which is a simple blood test that need not be done at a specific temperature. So you can use RF as a screening test and followed by the cryocrit. And again, if you look at the cryocrit levels, the symptoms and presentation does not actually correlate with the levels of the cryocrit. The treatment for hepatitis C-associated cryoglobulinemic vasculitis. Dr. Martin? Typically, the treatment is that of the underlying hepatitis C infection. And I think that's particularly important now that we have effective all-oral therapies. There was a perception in the past, in the interferon era, that cryoglobulinemia was less responsive to antiviral therapy. But now with the all-oral agents, it's been established that eradication of hepatitis C infection in most circumstances leads to mitigation 
of the manifestations of cryoglobulinemia. So in cryoglobulinemic vasculitis, the pathogenesis is the clonal expansion of the B cells that occur due to the presence of hepatitis C. So as Dr. Martin has mentioned, treating the underlying disorder or the underlying etiology for the cryoglobulinemic vasculitis would resolve and mitigate most of the symptoms. However, this is an immunologic phenomenon. So even after treatment and successful cure of hepatitis C, circulating cryoglobulins can be present in up to 20% of the patients. And the clonal expansion of the B cells can continuously happen and the stimulus can be present just because of the presence of hepatitis C antibody and the immune complexes. However, I think it's worth pointing out that in patients with very severe vasculitis, it may be necessary to use some additional interventions such as plasmapheresis or cytotoxic therapy, typically with rituximab, to control the vasculitis and the end organ damage before intervening with treatment of the hepatitis C. Thank you for that case and discussion, doctors. And we'll return with Dr. Ramba Minamari and Dr. Paul Martin from the University of Miami in just a moment. Thank you for listening to this eViral Hepatitis Review Podcast. If you're unfamiliar with our program, we're a combination newsletter and podcast continuing educational series. We're available online without cost or prerequisite. Eviral Hepatitis Review newsletters are published every other month. Each issue focuses on a specific area of importance in the care of patients with viral hepatitis and is authored by an expert clinician who reviews the current literature and provides commentary. In the month following each newsletter, a case-based podcast discussion, like the one you've been listening to, brings that expert perspective to translating the new information into clinical practice. Continuing education credit for eViral Hepatitis Review is jointly provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. For more information about eViral Hepatitis Review, please go to our website, eviralhepatitisreview.org. Welcome back to this eViral Hepatitis Review podcast. We've been speaking with Dr. Ramba Minamari and Dr. Paul Martin from the University of Miami's Miller School of Medicine about identifying and managing special patient populations with hepatitis C-related hepatic and extrahepatic manifestations. With our first patient, we discussed chronic kidney disease and cryoglobulinemic vasculitis. I'd like to turn our attention now to patients considering transplant. Uh, so if you would, Dr. Martin, please start us out with a patient scenario. Our next patient is a 74-year-old gay male who has been on long-term therapy for HIV, who is referred for an opinion regarding renal transplantation. The patient's been on dialysis for the last three years. His comorbidities include hypertension, diabetes mellitus, and hyperlipidemia. And in addition, he's had a prior diagnosis of hepatitis C infection with genotype 1B. He denies alcohol use at this time. He has no symptoms to suggest overt hepatic decompensation, such as ascites, jaundice, or symptoms of hepatic encephalopathy. On physical examination, he has a good muscle mass, BMI 32. He has no ascites. He's a palpable liver edge and is dull in the splenic area. Pertinent labs include a platelet count of 150,000, a creatinine of 5.4. AST of 34, ALT of 28, bilirubin, albumin, and INR are within the normal limits. 
hepatitis C genotype is 1B, as noted earlier, with an HCV RNA level of 480,000 international units. Ultrasound shows an echogenic liver and a fiber scan reveals a fibrosis score of 12.2 kilopascals. Transjugular liver biopsy was performed and revealed stage 3 fibrosis with minimal steatosis. The pressure gradient was 7 millimeters of mercury. So this patient, Dr. Vimitamari, would you consider him a candidate for isolated kidney transplant or should he have simultaneous liver and kidney transplant? That's a great question, Bob. This is actually one of the common scenarios in our transplant clinics that whenever a patient has two organ involvement, and at least in this patient who is a candidate for kidney transplant, he also has hepatitis C and chronic liver disease. So the first step when we're deciding whether he will go for just a kidney transplant or simultaneous liver kidney is to assess the function and the status of the underlying liver. So an appropriate staging of liver disease is very important to make decisions regarding transplant in this patient. So obviously, what we'll look for in the evaluation for chronic liver disease is the presence of scar tissue or fibrosis. So this patient has advanced fibrosis as seen in the fiber scan score of 12 kilopascals. And he also got a transjugular liver biopsy, which does not show portal hypertension. He does not have clinically significant evidence of portal hypertension like ascites, varices, or encephalopathy. So again, I think this patient does have hepatitis C with stage 3 fibrosis. And since he doesn't have cirrhosis, he doesn't have liver decompensation, he's a good candidate to go for an isolated kidney transplant, and he does not need a liver transplant along with the kidney. Treatment of his hepatitis C. Uh, Dr. Martin, would you offer that to this patient? Well, that is certainly a consideration. And very importantly, this patient in the past would have been deemed a very difficult candidate for therapy. Number one, he has chronic kidney disease and is on dialysis. And then secondly, he's co-infected with HIV. The good news is with our currently available all oral regimens, this patient can anticipate a likelihood of successful hepatitis C treatment at least as good as patients without those two comorbidities. In this circumstance, however, he is a candidate for a renal transplant. We know that he's well compensated liver disease, and hopefully we can expedite his kidney transplant by using a donor kidney from a a donor who is infected with hepatitis C. If we were to treat the hepatitis C now, he would not be able to accept donor offers from hepatitis C positive donors. So it is feasible to treat him. There's no urgency because our evaluation does not suggest that he's advanced decompensating liver disease, which requires urgent therapy. And in this circumstance, I would sit tight and wait on successfully undergone renal transplant and treat him then. So, Dr. Bhaminamari, the evolving approaches to managing this patient in a transplant setting. So, the hepatitis C treatments have really gotten better, feasible, and we have a regimen for almost every setting currently. As Dr. Martin said, there were a lot of difficult-to-treat groups in the past, which included HIV patients, which included chronic kidney disease and dialysis patients. But now there are treatment options for all these settings. 
So this clinical vignette actually touches several points and several strategies that we can use in the setting of transplant. So if the patient were to have a, a live donor or if the patient is not a candidate for kidney transplant, he could be treated in this setting with several regimens. Grasoprovir, Elbosvir, Glacaprovir, and Fibrintasvir, they're definitely the two regimens that can be used in this setting. Now, when you want to transplant this individual, the one thing that we need to keep in mind is if we treat his hepatitis C, he may have to wait on the wait list in order to get transplanted for almost six years or more. This is common in all geographic regions. Whereas if he were to accept hepatitis C positive organs, he could be transplanted in a matter of six months instead of six years. So I think we should wait. He can be treated for his hepatitis C after the kidney transplant. And because he consented for hepatitis C positive organs, he can actually get the organs at a much earlier rate rather than waiting for several years. And there is an annual mortality risk of 8 to 15% in these kidney transplant candidates because every year they wait, there is a risk of mortality while being on dialysis. Dr. Martin, we haven't really talked about his HIV co-infection. How is that likely to affect the outcomes of his hepatitis C treatment? As I mentioned, the efficacy of the currently available all-oral regimens is excellent in patients with HIV co-infection. There has been concern, however, that the liver disease may be more aggressive in co-infected patients, and that may lead to an increased risk of outcomes such as hepatocellular carcinoma. This patient already has stage 3 fibrosis, and personally, this is somebody I would advise to have regular surveillance for hepatocellular carcinoma with a twice-yearly ultrasound. So even after we eradicate the hepatitis C infection, I would be inclined to provide long-term follow-up for this patient's liver disease. Thank you for bringing us today's cases and discussion, doctors. Let's wrap things up now by reviewing today's key takeaways in light of our learning objectives. So our first learning objective, identify, diagnose, and manage hepatitis C-associated cryoglobulinemic vasculitis. Dr. Bhaminamari. So to identify a patient with HCV-associated cryoglobulinemic vasculitis, one should have a good clinical suspicion. So one should look for the symptoms and signs that the patient complains. Typically, when there is more than one organ involvement, including peripheral neuropathy, rash, weakness, and CKD, these should trigger the clinician to look for cryoglobulinemia. Now, to diagnose cryoglobulinemic vasculitis, rheumatoid factor testing will be an easier screening test because the processing of the specimen is easier. It doesn't need any temperature control. And if the RF is positive, we can next go and test for cryocrit and C4 levels. Now, to manage HCV-associated CV, obviously, the treatment of the underlying condition, which is hepatitis C, will actually help and mitigate most of the symptoms of cryoglobulinemic vasculitis. One should keep in mind that Although hepatitis C is successfully cured, persistent cryoglobulins can be present and the patient can still continue to have symptoms of CV. And in these patients, corticosteroid therapy, cytotoxic therapies with rituximab, and sometimes plasmapheresis are needed to help control the symptoms. And our other learning objective, 
the changing management strategies in solid organ transplantation and the use of organs from hepatitis C positive donors. The advent of effective all oral therapies for hepatitis C has resulted in some major changes in the way we manage patients who require organ transplantation and also patients who are co-infected with HIV. It is now possible to successfully treat organ transplant candidates before or after transplant. Increasingly, treatment is delayed until after transplant to allow these patients access to organs from hepatitis C-infected donors. This has resulted in expansion of transplant activity overall and a reduction in waiting times, for instance, in kidney transplant. Importantly, we've also seen an evolution in the management of patients with hepatitis C or HIV co-infected. The all oral regimens for hepatitis C are highly effective in HIV co-infected patients who can now anticipate response rates identical to patients who are mono-infected with hepatitis C alone. These changes in treatment options have therefore resulted in a major change in our treatment strategies in both of these important patient groups. From the Miller School of Medicine at the University of Miami, Dr. Ramba Minamari, Dr. Paul Martin, our thanks to you both for participating in this eViral Hepatitis Review podcast. Thank you, Bob, for having me and Dr. Martin. It's truly a pleasure doing this piece. Bob, thank you for the opportunity to discuss these interesting cases which illustrate how the management of hepatitis C has evolved so rapidly. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at eviralhepatitisreview.org. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the eViral Hepatitis Review newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME and CE credit emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with viral hepatitis. This activity has been developed for primary care physicians, gastroenterologists, infectious disease specialists, OBGYNs, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, and nurses, and other clinicians diagnosing or managing patients with viral hepatitis. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the accreditation requirements and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, through the joint providership of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. The Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing is accredited as a provider of continuous nursing education by the American Nurses Credentialing Center's Commission on Accreditation. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute of Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hour. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive eViral Hepatitis Review via email, please go to our website, eviralhepatitisreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. 
Use of the names of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. Eviral Hepatitis Review is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated and AbbVie Incorporated. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine.